Welcome to Thought Crime and Keto Crime, where Tracy does the sleuthing so you don't have to. Hey everyone, welcome to Thought Crime and Keto and Crime. I'm back in my Nana's house. We're going to be talking about Jim Jones and the People's Temple. This one could be quite a long one. There's a lot of information that I found that I was not aware was true. Um, lots of stuff that's uh, both weird and fascinating, and I don't know why I'm picking up my hairbrush and showing it to you. But very weird, some very weird stuff, and uh, I want to cover it all. I'm gonna. My plan is to cover this in several sections, so there's going to be kind of an introduction and background. Then we're going to go into Jim Jones' childhood, and then I'm going to go into the Indiana years of the People's Temple, and then to the California years of the People's Temple, and then on to actual Guyana. So we probably won't get to the massacre until the very last episode, so if that's the information you're here for, then I highly recommend waiting for the final the final episode of this series where we will cover that. But if you are like me and want to know the whole story, or the rest of the story, like Paul Harvey used to say, I'm really old, <laughs> that Paul Harvey used to say, then stick around for all the episodes because I found out a lot of really interesting stuff. I even found out that I might have possibly had a cousin in the People's Temple, which is really freaky, but we'll get to that. Anyway, let's get into it, shall we? What was the People's Temple? The People's Temple was, at a glance, a church within first the uh, uh, sort of an independent Pentecostal. Then it became absorbed into the Disciples of Christ, which from what I understand is kind of an offshoot of the Church of Christ, and that they but they allow instrumental music and some other more liberal progressive things than the Church of Christ does. And then also uh, at one point it was also kind of absorbed into the Assemblies of God, but will the Independent Assemblies of God. So we'll get into all that, but it was at glance a church, and then from there it mag it kind of morphed into a social movement and a political organization, and then from there we know it what became a cult. And I think what we're going to see is that it was always kind of a cult, at least a cult of personality. Uh, in the form of its leader, the Reverend Jim Jones, which is going to take up the majority of this video. So it was always kind of a cult of personality, but then it morphed into an actual murderous doomsday type of cult. And of course it ended with probably the still, still the most, the biggest mass suicide on record. I mean, it even trumps that of the Branch Davidians and, uh, so, definitely uh, one that has always captured our curiosity. It was one that if, I think that if the story had ended a lot sooner than it did, that is if they didn't go to Guyana or if they went to Guyana and actually did what their original vision was and hadn't gone all winky-dinky and killed everyone, I think we would have been reading about Jim Jones and the People's Temple in today's history books talking about what a progressive organization they were and how they were leaders in the civil rights movement and the social social justice movement and how they did so much for the integration of some very segregated parts of the country. 
So I wish it had stopped there. I wish I wasn't even having to make this video. But that's not what happened. So let's get into it. And to start with the People's Temple, we have to start with the birth of its leader. James Jones was born May 13, 1931 in Crete, Indiana. He was the uh, daughter of Lynetta Jones and James Thurman Jones. Now Now, Lynetta was very interesting. She was definitely ahead of her time as far as being kind of progressive thinking and definitely being a feminist. We're talking about right in the middle of the Depression era that she kind of grew up and, and came of age. So it was definitely culturally proper for a young woman to only seek out marriage and family. So definitely more culturally acceptable for a woman to seek out marriage and family. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I think however way you want to go is fine. But it was what women were expected to do. And she did not want to do that. In fact, she very animately from the time she was a child declared that I want to have a career. I want to be a businesswoman. I want to be like my stepfather. And her stepfather was a very successful businessman, so she looked up to him, and she wanted to be just like him. So, for a long time, she wanted to go to college. She wanted to do exactly the opposite of what the social mores of the time would dictate that she should do. And then her mother died uh, when she was very young, in fact, under the age of 20. And from that point on, she changed her tune. Uh, something turned in her when her mother died, and instead of pursuing a career, pursuing being a business owner, she decided she did want marriage and family. But she was a little bit older by the time she actually started dating. So let me just tell you something about this era. My grandmother got married, and not the grandmother here, but my other grandmother got married during this same time frame that Lynetta would have been. She was 13. So there was nothing unusual or wrong about people wedding very, very preteen-esque. Not saying that's okay, I'm just saying it was a historical fact, both men and women. So even though she was only in her like mid-twenties by the time she decided that she wanted to get married, uh, she was already an old maid by those standards. And the man that she found, the man that showed her interest that wanted to marry her was James Thurman Jones who was 16 years her senior, a World War I veteran, and also partially disabled. He had lung ailments. I really couldn't find anything saying exactly what he had, but I'm going to venture that it was probably COPD or emphysema from smoking because he was a smoker. So I'm, I'm going to venture to say it was that. He drew a very small pension from the Army, very small and attempted to make it as a farmer in uh, the Crete, Indiana area. And that's where he and Lynetta met, got married, and attempted to make it as a farmer. But again, right in the middle of the Depression era. So think of the movie of Mice and Men, you know, the Dust Bowl. Even though it was Indiana, not Oklahoma, you were still in that same breadbasket of America area. And of course, the farm failed. 
it was, you know, Lynetta had to pitch in and help because he did have a lung condition and also he had a little bit of lazy. We're going to get to that. And the farm failed. And so they decided to move to nearby Lynn, Indiana. That was a town of about a thousand people, but it was a, you know, incorporated township. So there were more jobs there. So that's where they moved after their farm failed. And a lot of farmers were moving out of farming into the cities at this time because they, in quite honesty, couldn't make a living farming because everything from the commodities market to everything had bottomed out. So it was very difficult to make a living as a farmer at this time, and a lot of them got foreclosed on. So moved to uh, Lynn, Indiana, and this is where Jim Jones grew up. Uh, however, once on arriving in Lynn, Indiana, um, where James, James uh, Thurman Jones had family, and his family were Quakers, so they were pacifists, and he was kind of the black sheep of the family because he had joined the army, and they didn't really care for that, so even though they had moved back closer to his family, he was still kind of considered an outcast, so... Um, wasn't the greatest relationship with his family. They didn't help very much, if that makes sense. So, but they were able to rent a small clapboard type house that had a barn and some, a, a little bit of acreage to it. And this is where Jim Jones grew up. But because of his father's case of lazy, uh, he was just kind of a loaf, uh, definitely an alcoholic, even though this was just after prohibition and, Lynn, Indiana really didn't feel prohibition um, because Lynn, Indiana was always dry. Uh, think of, This is a town of a thousand people with 20 churches in it. So, and, you know, that's not unusual in the Midwest and the South. So definitely it was still a dry county. They never even knew prohibition was a thing. But still, he liked to drink and he got it in illegal ways, of course, and spent what money he did have on that. He did some odd jobs. But what he really loved to do was play cards, so that's how he busied himself. Every morning, he would pull his butt up out of bed and walk down to the local pool hall, where they didn't serve alcohol, at least legally, and he would sit there and play pool and drink coffee and soda and play cards all day, while Annetta went out and worked two jobs. She worked at a couple of stores. She also worked in a, one of the many factories around Lynn, Indiana. There was... A tomato canning plant there. There were textile mills around there. Very industrial area. There were also near Richmond, Indiana, which was about 15 miles away. And she would sometimes carpool with people that work there to want some of the mini factories there. And so she worked a lot to support the family. And as a result, little Jimmy, from the time he could move around on his own, was kind of on his own. Uh, he was seen many times playing in the yard outside with no one watching him. Uh, child protective services really wasn't a thing in this day, so a lot of this happened. Um, I know in some of my other, my, in my Alcatraz video, we talked about how one of the uh, convicts during the Battle of Alcatraz had been kind of looked after by his older sister, and she set him too close to the uh, fireplace and he caught on fire they both caught on fire and he was left brain damaged as a result of that so but yet cps didn't come same here cps didn't come it really wasn't a thing so little jimmy was literally left to his own devices even his father was supposed to be watching him but of course as soon as 
mama was gone, daddy would go to the pool hall. He would simply try to lock Jim in the house, but that didn't work. You know, maybe as a baby, that's what they did, but he was a toddler toddling around by himself, and he actually learned to walk, legend goes, by pushing a small red card. He would simply push that red card around, and that's how he learned to walk. And there was another story where a neighbor by the name of Myrtle Kennedy, who will play a very important part in Jim Jones' religious development, happened to be looking out of her window. She kind of kept an eye on Jimmy because she knew he was out playing by himself, and she would often bring him in the house and clean him up and feed him because he was kind of dirty. She even spotted him a few times with excrement on the back of his pants. I mean, that's how neglected this poor child was. And I don't think Lynetta or James Thurman Jones should have ever had children and definitely shouldn't have been married. They were definitely a dysfunctional family. And so Myrtle would watch him from her window and she recalls seeing him playing by the train tracks. She was on her way out, out, out of the house to stop him because she was afraid he was going to get hit by the oncoming train. And the oncoming train did zip by him. But the cow catcher caught his little red cart that he always pushed around learning to walk and drug it, drug it away. So you had little Jimmy laying there in the dust. His boot, you know, his booby has just been pulled away. So she recounted that. And she said from that moment on, she took him into her home and he stayed with her when her parent, when his parents weren't around, which was most of the time. And Jimmy was exposed to Myrtle Kennedy's very extensive beliefs in religion. She was an avid believer of the Bible, a true fundamentalist. She um, actually exposed him to the, to the Nazarene religion, which is just a mainstream type of Christianity, nothing wild. And that's where she, she took Jimmy to church with her, and Jimmy started to really get into the Bible. Uh, he, he learned to read from a very young age because of Mrs. Kennedy. She would give him all kinds of books to read. And so he grew up reading the Bible. He read a lot of the classic literature that was you know, written at that time. And as he got older, always very advanced for his age, he started reading the works of Karl Marx, Stalin, Lenin, Gandhi, and even read Mein Kampf by Adolf Hitler. Um, he was He's often been quoted as saying he admired the social order of the Third Reich, but did not care for their worldview or the way they treated people, their human rights, but he did admire the order that came during the Third Reich and in Stalinist Russia. Not that he cared for their brutality, but that he admired the order and the way that everybody supposedly had everything that they needed. So little Jimmy grew up from a long time reading all kinds of stuff and getting very interested in the economic theory of socialism and communism, which will play a heavy part in his later life. Also, Jimmy was an avid lover of animals. If, uh, if a stray needed a home, he would pick it up. Dogs, cats, goats. He had a very menagerie out back. They had a little pen out back at the little clapboard house, and he put all kinds of animals in there and would go out and play with them. He would take care of them. He would have funerals for them when they died. I mean, he took care of those animals. He also became pretty obsessed with his appearance. Um, he's been described, in fact, 
The signature book on Jim Jones is called Raven. It's by Tim Reederman, who was a survivor of the Jonestown Massacre, the the massacre at the Landing Strip, which we will get into much, much, much later. And he wrote the definitive book, and it was called Raven because Jim Jones had jet black hair, often referred to as Raven, and he kept it cut in such in styled in such a way, slicked back. He was obsessed with his hair from the time he understood that appearance mattered. He also was obsessed with shining his shoes, washing his clothes. So he started with Myrtle Kennedy's tutelage, started doing a lot of the domestic stuff around the house that when Lynetta was at work and when his father was out playing cards and doing what his father did. He also, because he their family was kind of considered weird, it was very weird that the woman of the house would be earning the living, living that the people of Lynn, Indiana kind of snubbed her, kind of snubbed. Plus also his mother cussed like a sailor and drank a little and wasn't a puritanical woman about town. So they were just kind of the outcasts, I guess, aside from the Kennedys and maybe their, his fam, uh, James, James's family, they didn't really have anyone that they really talked to. So they were kind of the black sheep. And as a result, for a lot of his childhood, Jim didn't have any friends. So he would go to different church. He would go around to different churches. With He would go to Myrtle's church. He would go around to other different churches. And really became really obsessed with the tabernacle, Gospel Tabernacle Church, which was on the outskirts of Lynn. And it was the town's only Pentecostal church. All the others in town were basically mainstream Protestant maybe a Catholic church, but for the most part, mainstream Protestant, Nazarenes, uh, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Episcopals, you know, just the very nice sit in the pews and sing and listen to the sermon type of Protestantism. But this gospel tabernacle was totally different. There was a female pastor, for one thing, which was very unusual for this time period. We're, we're into the, you know, late 30s, early 40s here. Very unusual for that time, and it was a hoot and holler, bench jumping, possibly snake handling type of Pentecostal church, and, and it wasn't made up of native Linians or native Indiana, Indiana residents. It was mostly transplants from Tennessee and Kentucky that went there, so it was definitely a transplant from the, the hills of the south, the Appalachian, and I'll link my video on snake handlers of Appalachia if you want to see that. But that religion, the Pentecostal religion, is very common in the mountainous regions in the, of, of Appalachia. And a lot of these people that went to this church were from that area in Kentucky and Tennessee. Hillbillies, outcasts, white trash, call whatever you want to call them, any derogatory name you want to call them, that's the type of church that Jimmy really fell in love with. He fell in love with the passion the jump in, the hoop, and the hollering, and Jimmy fell in with the best of them. Even at 10 years old, he was in there jumping around, faking speaking in tongues because he didn't really get it, but he never really got it. He, he never really did it. He never really believed. We're going to get into that. But he was in there faking, jumping around, you know, pretending to speak in tongues, and he would always catch the crowd's attention because he's a little 10-year-old boy doing all this stuff, and and the female preacher took a huge interest in him and started kind of grooming him to be a child preacher. Child preachers are a novelty. 
there's tons of documentaries uh, out there about children that have been forced into being ministers by their parents and they just have them put on a performance and they make lots of money. Lots of them. Just Google it. Child preachers. All kinds out there. And it's actually the backstory. If you're, if you're a horror fan like me and you like the Children of the Corn series, that's actually Isaac, you know, the creepy kid. That's his backstory. He was forced into being a child preacher and was even fed Quicksilver to stun his growth so that he would always be a child preacher. Honestly, Jim Jones beginning was stuff out of a horror film. I kid you not. But anyway, she was grooming him to be a child preacher and kind of trotting him out at services. Well, both Mrs. Kennedy and his mother, Lynetta, got wind of this. And Lynetta actually went to one of the services. And when she saw what this preacher was doing with her son, she got angry and confronted her. And you know, almost forbade Jimmy not to go back to church, but Jimmy begged. He liked it, so she continued to let him go. But it was at that point that Jimmy started having night terrors, and Jim Jones' lifelong struggle with insomnia began. And he started having night terrors about snakes, which leads me to believe either the story of the serpent in the Bible really got to him, or maybe they were handling snakes when Lynetta wasn't there. But anyway... He started having really bad night terrors, and as a result, Lynetta finally did put her foot down, and little Jimmy was taken out of that church. So, he had to busy himself making his own church, and he absolutely did. But eventually, Jimmy did go to school, and he started having a actually decent, decent luck finding friends. And he started kind of uh, hanging around with a bunch of kids and sort of became their uh, de facto leader. Uh, he turned the loft in the family barn into his own little church. He created a pulpit and an altar. He put white sheets down. And he would invite kids from school over to listen to him preach. And they would come and listen to him. And they would play and get into the service. And they'd be out there having a hoop and holler, a good time. And then Jimmy would help them with their homework, too. So it was just kind of a... A thing but the the adults that kind of witnessed this they admired Jimmy and that he seemed to be a natural born leader and he would amaze the children by what he could do he would let them play with his animals down below so it was kind of like a petting zoo so that was a draw to kids he also had homing pigeons he would adopt these pigeons and actually teach them to carry messages to and fro and he would show them how some pigeons would come in some pigeons would go out and he would actually put little messages on them and send them out. We don't know if there were actually anybody receiving those messages, but pigeons would come in and out carrying messages. And the kids were just amazed. He would also have funerals for animals when they died. This includes, included his friend's pets. And there were some kind of creepy stories that maybe Jimmy actually killed a couple of animals just so he could have funerals for them but you would see these funeral possessions going through the woods these kids with these animals you know it's a very kid thing to do but it's a little little weird also jimmy was very interested in science he saved his money and bought a early version of a microscope and he would actually you know dissect the animals that died or he killed however they met their end and he would look at the stuff under the microscope he would let his uh friends look at it he wouldn't let them touch anything like the slides or anything but he would let them look he also tried early versions of surgery i think i think this was the most disturbing part he would do blood transfusions with animals um 
he would he also tried to put a duck's leg on a chicken um with grafting that didn't really work work too well but he would try all kinds of stuff and then there were rumors that when kids didn't want to come over when he couldn't entice them over with other stuff he was very tom sawyer machiavellian i mean he would convince kids that work was fun and he would get them to help with work but there were just sometimes kids didn't want to come over so he would literally lock them in the barn sometimes uh there was an actual story where he trapped two boys in his barn overnight and the only way he would let them out is if they yelled how hitler so it was just he was a strange young man that's the only way i can but he was years ahead of your normal, you know, preteen and teenager in in maturity as far as being able to do chores and kind of hold down a household, which he was still having to because he was still kind of left at home alone. He was also smarter than the average kid. He was well-read. Um, also, he sprung into puberty a lot faster than a lot of his friends. By the time he was 14, he had sprung up at least another four inches. He... To hear other people describe it, little Jimmy was well endowed. I don't know why I feel the need to say that, but it's relevant to some of the things he and his friends would do. Uh, they would have literal pissing contests where these boys would go out back and pee, and they would pinch, pinch, yeah, and cause a huge stream of pee, and Jimmy would always win. So he would win stuff off his friends, like money, like trinkets, like bicycles, what have you. So he would literally have pissing contests with his friends, as well as church services and and grotesque science experiments. I mean, it's fascinating and terrifying all at once. Jimmy's best friend was a young man by the name of Don Foreman, and they actually met in first or second grade and were best friends all throughout all throughout their childhood. In fact, some of the earliest memories that Don has of, Don had of Jimmy was when they would go downtown. No, Jimmy didn't have any money, neither did Don. And they would go down to the local gas station where a bunch of the town men would sit around fixing old cars and drinking soda pop. Well, those boys didn't have money for soda pop. But Jimmy had derived a way to get money for soda pops. And he would light in to the most tyrannical tirade of cursing that anyone had ever heard and the men at the garage thought it was the funniest thing they'd ever did and they would pay him nickels to curse so just think of the worst things you can have a child say they would pay little jimmy to to scream out obscenities and this was you know at the age of seven eight nine ten in addition to be kind of being a religious fanatic he also could manipulate people for money which would play into this. And Don remembers Jimmy going in there and getting enough money for them to get sodas and candy and whatever. So I guess you do what you got to do. But it was uh, during their freshman year of high school that Jimmy started church hopping again. And he went back to the gospel tabernacle where his, he had been banned by his mom for a couple of years. And he took Don with him. It scared Don to death and Don didn't even stay for one host service, but Jimmy did. Um, he actually really got into it. He started uh, going back and he actually took a white sheet and fashioned for himself a choir robe and he would wear that uh, to the gospel uh, tabernacle and dress in it and hoop and holler around and have a good old time. And uh, 
people just thought it was strange. They would see this kid walking along in a white sheet. And Jimmy also about this time started street preaching. He would preach a little bit on the street. He would point out people that doing things that he thought was wrong and he would call them out for it. He also started doing that to kids who were playing marbles and cards and doing things and cussing, even though he earned money by cussing. He would get all over kids for doing kid things like playing marbles and jacks and and cards and tell them they were going to hell. So he didn't make himself a whole lot of friends outside of Don Foreman, who's just, like I said, had known him so long, he didn't feel the need to, to break. But the first time Don said that he thought about breaking ties with Jimmy was about the age of 14 or 15 when uh, Jimmy had acquired a BB gun and they were just horsing around with it, shooting at, you know, little targets and stuff. And Don turned his back and Jimmy shot him with the BB gun. And Don said he felt like the hot pain go into his leg and he screamed and looked at Jimmy and said, why'd you do that? And he goes, I just wanted to see if you could take it. Whew. About two years after that, about the age of 17, Don started getting a lot into sports and Jimmy became kind of a nerd, not even like a sci-fi nerd, just a nerd. He wore suits to school. He always had polished shoes, nice hair. Don became an athlete. Don definitely had Hoosier fever. He loved ba basketball, football, all kinds of stuff. So they kind of started to drift apart. But Don would often take Jimmy fishing and hunting and things like that so, so that Jimmy wouldn't be completely alone. Well, one time they were out hunting as teenagers and they were hunting rabbits and Don and Jimmy were walking alone. Don gave Jimmy a hunting rifle and showed him how to safely carry it, but Jimmy wasn't carrying it safely. You know, when you carry a hunting rifle, you point it down away from anyone's appendages, and you have the safety on, and you walk with it down like that. Well, Jimmy, he didn't know if he had the safety on it or, or not. He hoped he did, but he was kind of pointing it down ahead of him, closer to Don's foot than Don would have liked. And he actually kept stopping and saying, Jimmy, carry that gun the way I showed you. Please don't point it at me. And they kept walking. And Jimmy then all of a sudden stopped and started yelling at Don to stop. And Don turned around and kind of went, you know, you're not the boss of me. Why are you telling me to stop? And continued to walk. And he heard the gun go off. And then searing hot pain in his foot, Jimmy shot Don in the toe. And at that point the hunting trip was over they had to take don to the doctor he did not lose his toe thank goodness but it was just a graze but still we're seeing jimmy show an affinity for telling people what to do he didn't like being told no he didn't like it when people broke from what he thought they should be doing and he had this bizarre definition of morality and what was right to do. So, yeah. He shot Don. And at that point, that friendship would have been over. But Don's not done yet. Don was truly a loyal young man, as we'll find out. But, just like Don, Jimmy had um, affections for girls. He seemed to gravitate toward the richer families in town. He would try to court the daughters of the doctors and the dentists in town. In fact, he did date the daughter of a local dentist for a little while. Her family seemed to adore him. She would play the piano for Jimmy. They seemed to have a really good 
repertoire, but they they eventually broke up. Don also, you know, dated and had girlfriends, boyfriends, uh, excuse me, girlfriends. And Jimmy seemed to migrate towards smarter and the richer kids. He didn't really have an affinity for the poorer kids in town or even the the black kids. There is a, a legend that Jimmy brought home the only uh, black boy in town and his father ordered him out, wouldn't let him come in, then Jimmy left home. That legend is not necessarily true. That's just what it is, a legend. Really, I couldn't find any evidence that Jimmy did that to his father, so I think that was just a popular story, maybe circulated by the People's Temple later on. Not saying Jimmy was racist, but there just wasn't a whole lot of black people in Lynn, Indiana. Um, Lynn, let me tell you about Indiana in the 20s, 30s, 40s, was the national headquarters of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, there's a very interesting documentary called a, a Ku Klux Klan, A Secret History, that is just rife with information about Indiana. Um, a lot of the government in Indiana was entangled with the KKK, so it was a very racist place during this time period. So that attitude was pretty prevalent. So as you can imagine, wasn't a whole lot of diversity, at least in appearance there. Probably wasn't a whole lot of diversity in thought either. Because as we said, Jimmy's mother was still kind of the brunt of being called sluts and bad per people because she cussed and drank and brought home the, the money in the house and they considered you know Jimmy's father kind of a loaf too so little Jimmy just got the the worst of it there but he did as I said date he did have some normal normal interactions uh he never really got into sports like Don did Don played basketball football baseball loved to watch it on television too when television came around and there was a time where Don actually invited Jimmy out to play basketball with some of his friends and Jimmy got angry and kind of broke up the game, and Don threatened to uh, to beat his butt, and Jimmy basically got in his face, and it was just kind of a bad, bad little incident. Um, from that time point on, Don kind of kept his distance. Um, there was really no further interaction with them outside of school after that incident, and as a result, because Don was a popular kid, uh, Jimmy kind of lost what few friends he did. He became even more of a religious zealot. He, as I said, preached to the kids about no drinking, cards playing, how sports was gateway to violence and the devil and, and all this stuff. Also, um, we're talking 1948, 49. Jimmy's parents split up. Uh, Lynetta could not take what we believe was probably emotional, even some physical abuse by Jimmy's father, and they left and moved to the, the city of Richmond, Indiana, which was a much bigger city with a lot more jobs, you know, easier to find a place to live, that sort of thing. A little more diversity, that sort of thing. And before he left, Jimmy wanted to try to say goodbye to his friend Don. So he invited Don over for supper, and Don rode over on his black Harley Davidson that he had just bought, and Jimmy didn't like the fact that he had a black Harley Davidson. He thought it was the road to the devil, and very dangerous, and that Don would die on it. And so he, he invited Don over, and the two had a very nice conversation. It was time for Don to leave, so he got up to 
leave. And Jimmy ran after him and said, Don, don't leave. Let's talk. I'm going to talk to you about that motorcycle. I'm scared that you're going to get hurt. And Don says, Jimmy, don't worry about me. You, you do good in Richmond. We'll see each other later kind of thing. And Don started to leave. And Jimmy said, no, Don, don't go hang out some more. And Don says, I don't want to hang out anymore. I got to go home. And Jimmy ran after him and ordered him to stop. And Don turned around and said, what? And when he turned around, Jimmy had gotten his father's pistol and was holding it just like that on Don and said, don't leave. And, J and Don says, Jimmy, put that down. You're going to hurt somebody with that. And he goes, if you try to leave, I will shoot you. Well, Don thought he was kidding, and he turned to walk toward his motorcycle, and a shot rang out, and it struck a tree just a couple of feet from Don. Don looked around and realized that Jimmy had not only shot, but he was preparing to shoot again, so he ran into the forest area there next to where Jimmy, where the Joneses lived, and kind of stayed hidden until Jimmy disappeared in which he came back out, jumped on his motorcycle, and went home. And you're probably thinking, that's the end of Don and Jimmy's friendship. No. Don, 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 Don. <laughs> if only I could go back in time and tell you about around the BB incident to be done with Jimmy, but no. So Don goes home. He doesn't tell his parents. That was another thing Don did. He would cover for Jimmy. Even when Jimmy shot him out hunting, Don told his parents that it was an accident. So Jimmy never really got in trouble for any of this. And I think that led into his earlier, his later on thinking that he was above reproach. So parents divorced. He and his mother moved to Richmond. Jimmy's about 16, 17 at this time. And Jimmy starts working at the hospital there in Richmond as an orderly in addition to going to the Richmond High School. He would um, also kept on preaching. He would go to different churches in Richmond. He also started street preaching for money. He would put a blanket down and stand on the streets of Richmond in, you know, poor neighborhoods and realized that perhaps African Americans were a little more receptive to street preachers than, you know, richer whites were. So, he would go to these neighborhoods and they would actually pitch him nickels and pennies while he was preaching. And he learned that he could draw a crowd that way in addition to working at the hospital for money to save for college because he had decided he wanted to be a lawyer and was studying for that. So, Also, Jimmy admitted around this time that he didn't really believe in a God uh, at all. He believed that God was kind of the gross amalgamation of all the good in people. So that's kind of, he was very much for social justice, especially when he saw the plight of African-Americans in the poor neighborhoods in Richmond. So he realized that there did need to be some reform and that perhaps an integration needed to be kind of the, you know, norm of the day. But there was a hard road and he decided that perhaps he could get into law and help make that a reality but he also realized that he could easily manipulate people in poorer neighborhoods by use of the term god so even though he didn't believe in god he knew that preaching and giving off the personification of a preacher with a social justice message could get him a long way in certain circles and he learned that in Richmond. Also, Jimmy was considered one of the best orderlies at the hospital. He really was a hard worker. 
And while there, he met a young nursing student by the name of Marceline Baldwin. And she was the daughter of a local Republican Methodist, very religious, traditional Christian Republican politician by the name of Walter and his wife, Charlotte Baldwin, who was a homemaker. Uh, Marceline also had two sisters, Eloise and Sharon. Now, Sharon, when Jimmy first started seeing Marceline, uh, he would go over and meet her family. They got along tremendously. Now, Marceline was about four years older than Jim. So Jim was 16. She was 20, 21, almost 21 at the time. So she was a little apprehensive about actually seeing him, but he won her over. He was kind of a romantic at heart. He did woo her and win her over. And she said that she would actually tell her roommate in nursing school, whose, names, whose name was Evelyn, Evelyn Ebler, that she was falling in love with Jimmy because of his heart and the way that he wanted to help people and that she had to help him remove the body of a deceased pregnant woman who had died of trichinosis, which is a disease you get from eating raw meat, particularly pork. It's kind of nasty. And that this, the empathy he showed for her and for the family made her absolutely fall in love with him. So she started taking him home to meet her family and Walter and Charlotte liked him. Uh, they invited him there for Christmas. He saw the Christmas tree. He had never seen a Christmas tree really before in a home because his family didn't really do anything for the holidays. And he did come off as kind of snide when he started kind of chastising the Baldwins about adultery instead of you know, keeping Christmas about God, even though he didn't really believe in God. But he was trying to put on a good front. And Marceline actually apologized to her family, but, you know, they liked him. They said, oh, it's, it's fine. It's fine. But her younger sister, Sharon, Sharon had caught um, rheumatic fever and actually, as a result, was partially crippled as a result. She had to spend a lot of, her legs were weakened, so she had to spend a lot of time in wheelchairs and on crutches. And Jimmy kind of became a surrogate older brother for her. And as a result, that made Marceline really love Jimmy even more. In the meantime, good old Don Foreman comes over from Lynn at the request of Jim. Uh, Don's looking for work. And Jim actually gets him a job at the hospital with him as an orderly and volunteers to train his friend. While training his friend, he makes him do the most disgusting jobs you can imagine and also plays a whole lot of jokes on John, on Don, and other people. Uh, for example, there was a couple of stories where there was a gentleman, an elderly gentleman, that was admitted with um, elephantitis of the scrotum. If you don't know what elephantitis is, it just makes things swell up really, really big. I don't know what was going on in Indiana that they had all these weird diseases, trichinosis, um, you know, elephantitis, but Jimmy was ordered to bathe this elderly man, and he did, but then he also helped him get up, and the guy, you know, elephantitis also affects the mind, so you're not really there, and he actually took off his, his hospital gown and kind of maneuvered the gentleman where he would walk outside and actually flashed the nurses with overgrown 
genitals that when, when they were standing there getting their instructions from their supervisor for the day. And then there was a, another time where he played a very nasty trick on Don. This was the final straw for Don and Jimmy. Jimmy told Don that he needed to come up to the operating room. They had actually had to amputate someone's leg. And Jimmy gave it to Don, lightly wrapped in a sheet, and told him he needed to take it down to the incinerator. Well, common sense would dictate that you would take this down to the incinerator, put it in, and leave. But Jimmy followed Don and forced him to stand there and watch that leg and smell that leg burn completely away. Well, that was it for Don. Don walked immediately out of the hospital and quit and never spoke to Jimmy again. Now, why would Jimmy do that? I don't know if Jim just had this bizarre fascination with trying to break Don and make Don completely his bitch. But I, I have no idea why he would do such a thing. But anyway, so Don's gone finally. Uh, Marceline is working. She She's a very kind person too. In fact, as a nursing student, they had dorms near the hospital. She lived there with her friend Evelyn and... Jim would let Evelyn go on dates with them. They had a really good relationship as well as a good relationship with her family. And uh, Marceline, when she got her first stipend as a nurse, they got a monthly stipend when they were nursing students. She used it to buy her mom a coat because her mom needed a coat. And she also would donate it every other month to the charities for the poor around town. So Marceline was a really good really good person. Now we're approaching 1948, 49-ish, and Jim graduated high school early because of his excellent academic record, and his plan was to go major in social studies type subjects and become, go into law and do some humanitarian work for, for the poor, and uh, Marceline really believed in that. She really ate that up, but she was still a little skeptical about a long-term relationship with him, because of the difference in their age. But as I said, Jimmy had be befriended her younger sister and was also very kind to Grandma Lamb, who was her mom's mother, who lived with, who'd come to live with them. And as a result, she realized he's a good guy. So I'm going to stick with him. And they continued to date. Jimmy did moved to Bloomington right after he graduated and started at Indiana University as a freshman. As soon as he got there, though, he got off onto a bad footing with his roommate. He walked in. His roommate had already been there a year. His roommate was a sophomore and had always had, had always had the bottom bunk. And Jimmy took the bottom bunk because when he got to the university, he had to get uh, a typhus uh, vaccination and it made him ill. He was one of the few people that do get sick after a vaccination and as a result, because he was so sick, he kind of took the bottom bunk and told his roommate he couldn't climb up there. Well, his roommate believed it and said, okay, well, we'll switch when you're feeling better. But even after he was better, Jimmy wouldn't leave the bottom bunk, and his roommate called him on it, and Jimmy said, well, I'm afraid of heights. Can't I just keep the bottom bunk? And so he kind of manipulated, again, his roommate into letting him have the bunk that he wanted. Okay, no big deal. Also, Jimmy would kind of bragged to his roommate, whose name was Ken, would kind of brag to his roommate about, about all these sexual escapades he had had, and that he had lost his virginity early, and 
stuff like that. Ken wasn't quite buying it, but, you know, he listened to kind of humor him. And uh, Jim was always kind of weird, though. Ken didn't really know what to think of it. And finally, one night, I guess Jim decided he wanted to manipulate Ken right out of the room so he could have his own room. Um, Ken woke up late at night, one night, and felt a, a huge searing pain in the middle of his back. And he thought he was having some kind of spasm, and then he realized there was something sharp coming through the mattress into his back. And he rolled over and realized that Jim Jones, on the bottom bunk, was pushing a hat pin straight up through the mattress into his back, stabbing him, and seemed to be in some kind of trance while he was doing it. So... As you can think, Ken didn't sleep much more that night. He actually went and reported him to the housing director and got switched to another dorm, and Jim had his own room. So, yeah. Uh, he would go back to Richmond almost every single weekend to visit Marshland, or Marshland would come over to visit him. Uh, he did propose to her on one of these weekends, and she said yes. So, June 12, 1949, Marceline married Jim Jones at Trinity Methodist Church in Richmond, Indiana. It was a double wedding. Her, sis her sister Eloise, who was 19, was marrying a man by the name of Dale Kingman. Sharon was the flower girl, and Evelyn was the maid of honor. And Jim was really happy because there was a lot of high-level politicians there from town, the mayor, the city council, because you remember her father was in city government and was a very successful Republican politician. So he drew a big crowd and Jim got to know a lot of very prominent people. Now, Jim was only 18 at the time. Where at, and everybody was really concerned about the, the marriage because even at the wedding, Jim kind of made a spectacle. Dale and Eloise were married first. And when they were pronounced man and wife, they did the traditional little peck in front of people. Okay, no big deal. I don't care how you want to kiss when you get married. But then when Marceline and Jim were pronounced man and wife, Jim pretty much took her, bent her over, and tongued her in front of everybody in the Methodist church. So pretty sure he was just doing that to make himself memorable. But in any case, there's a lot of things, you know, wrong a lot of things wrong with Jim Jones' way of doing things, even early on. He also kind of began torturing her younger sister, Sharon. Remember Sharon's on crutches in a wheelchair? He started talking to her about actually being an atheist and that he was just pretending to be a Christian because it was a good way to get into, you know, social reform and stuff like that. And that from what he had seen in the hospital, he described a lot of really grotesque things he had seen at the hospital that he knew there could not be a merciful God that would allow any of that to happen. He was telling this to a young 15-year-old girl in a wheelchair, and Sharon actually became kind of scared of Jim, so she started kind of backing up a little bit, and I don't know why Jim was using this young 15-year-old girl as a confidant, maybe because he was technically closer to her in age than he was to his new wife, but, and maybe he knew... Marceline, who was kind of a spitfire herself, would call him on it. So, okay, so Marceline and Jim married. They moved to Bloomington so that he can continue his education, and they end up living in a trailer on the outskirts of Bloomington while Marceline works. 
several jobs, so does Jim. And among these odd jobs, Marcin would work some as a nurse. She would also work in a diner. She would work, Jim would work in a diner. Jim would work, you know, this kind of a janitor sort of situation, but he also got a job as a nude model at the local, at Indiana University. I thought that was pretty interesting. He started to speak to Marshallin a lot about the beauty of communism and the socialist system and how it's good to have, you know, everybody provided for the same. I mean, there's a good theory there, I guess, but we know that that doesn't always work in reality. But Jim had the idea that it could work, and so he started to talk a lot about it. He also started to talk a lot about communism and his atheism around the Baldwins around Walter and Charlotte and they didn't really like it and so they started a rift started started forming between Jim and his in-laws and by this time Sharon Sharon Baldwin was absolutely terrified of, of Jim she didn't want to be around him and uh, one time they had kind of a falling out when the Baldwins had come over to visit Marceline and they kind of kind of left well a couple of weeks later um, they were back having a visit, and when they went out to uh, get in their car, uh, Walter discovered the car felt a little funny. It was driving a little funny, so when they got home, they had a mechanic look at it, and the mechanic told them it looked like it had been tampered with, that someone had attempted to cut their brake line, also some things in the engine had been tinkering with, and everyone, the Baldwins immediately suspected Jim. Uh, they don't. They didn't know why. They just had a feeling. They didn't really voice their concerns to Marceline, but they really believed that Jim had tampered with their car in an effort to make them get into a car accident. Also, he began to play mind games with Marceline. Uh, they had he had started treating Marceline much like his father had treated his mother. So you know that's a cycle. You see people abuse people. That happened, so he started doing this very same thing to Marceline. In fact, the psychological abuse he would put on her reached kind of a breaking point when one morning she was cooking and he was reading the newspaper to her and he read about a traffic accident that had happened in Richmond that had claimed the life of some students that Marceline had gone to high school with and started ringing off the names. Well, he inserted the name of one of Marceline's best friends in the list of the dead. And Marceline absolutely broke down. She couldn't believe it. She says, I got to find out about the funeral, blah, blah, blah. And Jim was like, no, no, I was just kidding. So why would you even do that? Why? Why? You're just that's just cruel. That's just cruel and unusual. I, I, this is, it gets more and more bizarre. Jim has kind of become disenfranchised with Indiana University in Bloomington. He wants to move to Indianapolis because his street preaching has kind of re reached a, cres a crescent, he thinks, in Bloomington. So he thinks he would have a much better opportunity to get into a church and do everything that he wanted to do in Indianapolis. So... They decided they would move there and he would attend the Indiana University campus at Indianapolis. In the meantime, one of Mar Mar uh, Marceline's cousins by the name of Ronnie Baldwin, his mother, he didn't have a, much of a father to speak of, and his mother got very sick. And so you had this young man that was just kind of couch surfing among relatives. So 
Jim and Marceline decided we'll take him in. We'll take him to Indianapolis with us. We'll just kind of adopt him and raise him. And Marceline was thrilled because Marceline wanted to be a mother more than anything. So here was this young boy named Ronnie Baldwin that she could kind of take care of as, as if he was her own son. So they kind of took him to raise in 1951 and he moved to Indianapolis. With Jim was finishing up his social science and humanities degree at Indiana University in Indianapolis. They moved into an apartment and they all worked at a diner that was nearby their apartment. But Jim continued to do his thing about picking up every stray animal that he ever came across. They had dogs, cats, chickens, and even a monkey, a pet capuchin monkey in this apartment and their neighbors started to complain so the landlord evicted them and they ended up moving to a house after they found the monkey dead somebody was out to get them and their monkey and they poisoned this poor monkey i've read that it was an actual chimpanzee an ape i've also read it was a capuchin monkey we're gonna go with monkey because i really hope he didn't actually have a chimp because if a chimp Chimps can be deadly when they get to be, like, grown, so I'm hoping he didn't do that. So we're going to go with monkey. But the chimp or the kabuchin monkey was poisoned by a neighbor, and that was the last straw. Landlord evicted them. They moved to a house, and they bought another kabuchin monkey. Well, they were still working a lot of jobs. They worked at the same diner. They worked a lot of odd jobs. They spoiled Ronnie rotten. Ronnie got tap dance lessons. Ronnie got put in every little league sport that he could possibly want. Uh, he got new clothes. He was loving life, but Jim and Marceline would go without so that Ronnie could have. And they also would. They also expected him to take care of the animals. Well, Ronnie actually wasn't much of an animal person, so he didn't like doing it. He did it kind of begrudgingly, but, you know, they, they would punish him when he didn't do it correctly, and he would tell them, I really don't like these animals. They scare me. I don't want to be around them. And as a result, Jim trained the new capuchin monkey to attack, to attack people and to specifically attack Ronnie. And he used that monkey to terrorize his young adopted son to death. Uh, one time the monkey actually got out. It went into a kitchen in the next house, just actually ransacked this lady's kitchen, jumped back out the window, kind of went crazy in the neighborhood. They had to call the fire department to come get this monkey, and they finally knocked it out of a tree with a hose. And Jim thought it was hilarious and laughed about it for a week while Marceline and Ronnie were absolutely petrified and terrified about it. And they continued to force, he continued to force Ronnie to take care of this monkey, even though it was trained to attack him. Another example of the psychological torment he put on his family was they took a trip to a lake one summer and he forced Ronnie out of the boat and gave him a kind of a, a line to hold and he drug Ronnie behind the boat for a couple of miles until a park ranger saw them and put a stop to it. So I have no idea why he felt the need to terrorize this poor boy. But I think this plays into his obsession with fully breaking somebody down. I mean, this is sadistic stuff. But this was young Jim Jones. I mean, at the time, he's 20 years old. We're at 1951, 1952. 
He's 20, 21 years old. And this stuff kept getting worse and worse as Jim got older. And finally, the breaking point, I think, for Ronnie was a trip to Niagara Falls that they took where he forced Ronnie to wade out into the falls holding on to a line and told him to trust him. And he actually forced this boy to wade out into the rapids. I mean, he, he did pull him back, just like he said he would do, but Ronnie was petrified. They also kind of pushed upon Ronnie the importance of having black friends, and he wanted him to understand that not everybody had what they considered white privilege at the time, and to have black friends, to learn the plight of people that were less fortunate of you, so they encouraged him to have black friends. Also, um, Jim actually returned to a more normalistic church. They decided to go to a Methodist church where they heard about the Methodist Social Creed, which came out about 1952, and it was basically kind of a push for social justice within the Methodist church. They talked about equality and how all people are created equal. You can pro you can definitely find it on the internet. I did, but it was a it's a very nice well-written document. And because of that, Jim was back to thinking, okay, maybe instead of staying more, you know, interdenominational, street preacher type, I could use a more mainstream religion like Methodism to to push my social agenda and to you know, forward my communistic aspirations, I could use the church. So after that, he decided to actually, instead of going to law school, after he finished his degree, he decided to, which he didn't actually finish at Indiana University, he had transferred to a smaller college called Butler, and did graduate there. But he decided to seek becoming you know, ordained as a Methodist minister. And that, of course, delighted the Baldwins because, you know, they thought, well, maybe he's coming around. Maybe he's coming around. Also, about 1952, they asked Ronnie if they could adopt him. They wanted to make it official. Ronnie did not want to be adopted. Jim's like, but I've been your father. She's been your mother. We've sacrificed so much for you. Why wouldn't you want to be our son? Now, Jim, like I said, is only 22 by this time, so... Ronnie's 14, 15. He's not much older than this boy he wants to adopt. And Ronnie goes, no, this was only, I stayed with you until my mom's back on her feet situation. I have a mom. I have a, a younger sibling. I want to go back to my family. Okay. Jim basically flipped out and sent Ronnie back to his mother that very night. Um, they would also go see Ronnie when they would go back to Richmond to visit uh, Marceline's family, and they would try to entice him to come back to um, Indianapolis and be their son. He didn't want any part of it. He was done. Also, Marceline was done, and Marceline asked Jim for a divorce, and he basically threatened her and said that if she tried to leave him, he would regret it. She told him a second time she wanted a divorce, and he threatened to kill himself if she tried to leave. Well, that tugged at Marceline's heartstrings. She couldn't take it, so she stayed. Even though every sensible cell in her body was screaming, this man is crazy, I need to get the hell out of here, she stayed. Okay, now we're kind of leaving Jim Jones, the youngster. He's finished college, and now we're going into the rise of the People's Temple in Indiana, in Indianapolis, Indiana. So Jim Jones is now... 
very obsessed with the Methodist social motto, so or the social creed. So he decides this is going to be his new model. So we're about to see the rise of what would become the People's Temple and the first stage of its development in Indianapolis, Indiana. And so with that, I'm going to end part one. We've covered all of Jim Jones' childhood and college years. Now we're going to cover the church in Indiana next time. So I will see you very soon. If you want to subscribe to the channel, please do like, comment, share, subscribe. If you want to support the channel, I've got links below. I've also got a Patreon. I'll put that link up here. Really appreciate it. I'm enjoying these longer videos. I hope you are too. And I'll be back with you really soon. Thanks a lot. Until next time. Keto Comics.